Daniel chapter 5 is where we're going to be, Daniel chapter 5 this evening, and uh, once you find it, go ahead and stand out of respect for God's word tonight. Daniel 5, we'll be continuing on in our look at Daniel 5. We started on Sunday night, which is the first four verses, and tonight we're getting about halfway through, and so we're breaking it down into small parts. So I'm um, trying to get through all of it and um, not keep you through the rest of the night. So Daniel chapter 5, it says in verse 1, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Now that thousand represents probably many more than just a thousand. Uh, probably, I mean, it, it, we hear later their wives and concubines, his were there. I imagine some say there were multiple thousands of people at this party. It says in verse 2, Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar. And by the way, when it says father, it's not always referring just to his direct father. It, it, it's likely that Nebuchadnezzar is maybe his grandfather. We know there's a relation somehow. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar, it says his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood and of stone. And unless, unless you think this is not a big deal, can you imagine letting a group of people come into our sanctuary and throw a party? You know, that, that's essentially what we're looking at when you're talking about defiling the vessels that had been taken out of the temple. Verse 5, it says, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed. Well, yeah. And his thoughts troubled him. So that the, this is one of my favorite parts in all the Bible. So that the joints of his knees were loosed and his knees smote one against another. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men, and, um, sorry, uh, wise men of Babylon, whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing, nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished, or stony, they were astonished. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man. There is a man in thy kingdom. And I love that phrase. There is somebody in the kingdom who can tell you the truth. There is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him who the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, 
astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, for as much, and this is one of the phrases that really stands out, for as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts, I like that one too, were found in the same Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will show the, uh, show the interpretation. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel, which art of the, of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry? I have even heard of thee, that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof, but they could not show the interpretation of the thing. And I've heard of thee that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck and shalt be the third ruler in the kingdom. Little did he know the kingdom only had a few hours left. Empty promises. But then Daniel, I love his answer. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. Tonight, I just want to notice a couple of things about Daniel here that make him stand out. And the two things that I see are he has a great spirit and he takes a strong stand. And those two things together are a dynamite combination. And I want to look at that tonight, how he was able to make a difference because he had a consistent spirit and a consistent stand. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. On Sunday night, we looked at the first few verses of Daniel 5, and, and we considered a principle that I think our young people needed to hear, and that we need to value what we've been given. And that we have the trend of young people these days, this generation, is to resist anything that comes from the previous generation. Whatever it is, they don't want it. They, they, they say, we don't want what you have. We're going to go get something of our own. We're going to make it ourselves. And they end up exchanging something valuable for something inferior. And it's happening in our culture. Young people tear down the values. They're tearing down the morals. They're tearing, tearing down the history, tearing down the worldviews of their parents or previous generations. And not for any good reason, except that they just want something different. They don't want to give any credit to the previous generation. They don't want anyone to think they're building on something. They want to claim in pride that they are doing it all on their own. And they're progressively thinking like no one has ever thought before. And that's great if they think it's revolutionary, but it happens in every generation. It's actually one of the most unoriginal things. That you say, we don't want what the establishment gives us, we want something new. And that's happening in our culture, we see it all the time. But it's also happening in Christian young people. That Christian young people that are raised in church and they have strong convictions and their parents have given them strong doctrines and, and good standards and raised them in a right way. They get out of the house and immediately kind of throw aside what they've been taught and trade it for what the peers and their culture is feeding them. So they give up the things they got from the people that actually loved them the most 
and they welcome values and worldviews from a culture that really doesn't care anything about them. And I, I want to challenge our young people again, not to just throw away what you have received unless you find something either more biblical or more obviously uh, superior to what you've received. And until then, I, I just want our young people to know, you should assume that God had a hand in you being raised the way you are and value that. Don't just toss it aside. See, Belshazzar ignored the value of, of Babylon that he, while his father was away, Nabonidus was away fighting for it, and he's throwing a party. Not only that, then he takes the vessels that had been used in Jerusalem in the temple to drink alcohol out of, out of the, at this Babylonian bash, we called it. And in the end, he lost the empire because of his actions. And we might be upset at Belshazzar for using the temple vessels and defiling them. But really, the losses started many years before this. The, the, the losses started when God's people devalued the temple centuries before and God allowed them to be taken captive for it. The vessels should have never been in Babylon. The vessels were there because God's own people looked at what God had given them and said, we don't value that anymore. And they started promoting those in the land like Jeroboam. Uh, he built, built high places and convenient places so they didn't have to go all the way to Jerusalem anymore. And then he promoted those who weren't qualified to be in the priesthood and said, y'all can lead this. He devalued what he had been given. And that happened in Israel. It also happened in the southern kingdom of Judah. And they devalued what God had given them. And that's the reason these vessels were in Babylon in the first place. It's, Bab it's Belshazzar's fault for doing what he did, but he's not responsible for those vessels. That goes way back to God's people many years before this. So now then we, look, we come to the next section of, um, of this passage, and it's quite the story, one we've heard many times, I'm sure many of us have, but still a lot of good lessons. And, and tonight, rather than focus on the entire story, we're going to take it piece at a time, and I'm going to focus on Daniel this evening. But I first want to notice the king's defiance here. That the Medes and the Persians, as we talked about Sunday night, the Medes and the Persians, they're the rising army of the day, and they have surrounded Babylon. They're literally outside the walls at this time. And Belshazzar, rather than calling in a strategy, rather than sending a message for help, rather than trying to get a hold of his dad wherever his dad was fighting, rather than praying, he throws a party. He believes that Babylon is so strong with their major walls, the height and the depth and the, and the length of their walls, he doesn't think anybody can penetrate those walls. Not only that, they have the resources, they have the river Euphrates running right through the city. He, they have food for 20 years. He thinks no one can touch us, let's just have a party. And he wants all of those around him to think we are impenetrable. He had placed his confidence in man-made strength, and that always gives you a false sense of confidence. In verse 4, instead of seeking the Lord, Belshazzar's defiant, he, they drink wine and praise the gods of gold and silver and brass and iron and wood and stone. They bring in these vessels that came from the Jerusalem temple, and they fill them up with alcohol, and they toast the gods, uh, these idols of gold and silver and brass and iron, they, they toast them as an act of defiance. They, were, they weren't just drinking out of them. They were mocking the God of those vessels. 
They were saying that the God of these vessels wasn't even strong enough to protect them. That's why we have them. And we're going to toast other gods instead. And you say, well, I don't know if that's his intention, except that's what Daniel tells him in verse 23. It says, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. So he very clearly was acting in defiance to to Daniel's God, to Jehovah, to Yahweh. He's pointing his finger in his face and mocking him. And the rest of them were mocking him too. And because of that, in response to that irreverence, then we see God make sure that Belshazzar's attention is gotten. Verse 5, in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. So the room is filled with laughter. It's filled with uh, revelry and suddenly out of nowhere, complete silence when this hand appears and starts writing on the wall. And my mind goes back to like the old flannel graph illustrations of this. If you grew up in church, then you saw them too. And this big massive hand is writing this message on the wall. And everyone stopped what they were doing. And the Bible says that it wrote in this place where the candle was shining so everyone could read what it said. And of course, we're not told right here what it says. And we'll talk about that perhaps next time. But the king is scared to death. And, and he's so scared that it says in verse 6, his countenance was changed, which means that the color left his face. You know, he, I imagine at this point he's been drinking, he's drunk, his cheeks are red with alcohol, and just like that he sees the hand come and his, his face drains of all of its color. And it says also in verse 6, his thoughts troubled him. Yeah, they would trouble me too. It says then that the joints of his loins were loose, meaning that all of his strength in his knees and his hips, um, he, he lost control over his strength and his legs, his hips give way. His knees are smiting together and I want to do it so bad. But I, this stuff ends up on, it's being live streamed and I don't want to, you know, I'm doing a dance. I'll do it behind the pulpit here tonight. You know, he loses all control. You know what it reminds me of? Have you ever seen the videos of the fainting goats? You know, and they, they scare this goat and he just stiffens up and falls over flat. That's, that's, I envision that. That's what I'm envisioning tonight. I'm imagining that that's what happens to Belshazzar. His legs, his hips give way. He has no control. He just falls over. His knees are smiting together on the ground. And I know it sounds funny, but his knees, they're knocking together. I mean, he is, he is frightened. It would frighten me too if this happened. Verse 7, he's so shaken, I'm not going to read it, he's so shaken by the experience that he cries out for his servants. He says, go get the magicians. Go get the wise men. Go bring in the, the soothsayers. Bring in the sages and let them tell me what the message that the fi giant finger wrote. Let them come in and tell me what it means. He is very serious about finding out what it means. And he says, if they can tell me whoever tells me what it means, I'm going to make him third in command in the entire country. It's, he's very serious to find out. Verse 8 says, then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled and his countenance was changed in him and his lords were astonished. Here he's, he's, he's calls in his pagan wise men and of course, once again, 
They cannot give the answer. They can't interpret the dream. And I'm just thinking here, you would think the kings of Babylon would know by now their wise men are not all that smart. It seems like every chance they get, they, they can't interpret the dreams. Is there any group of people in scripture worse at their jobs than the Babylonian wise men? You know, how did they still have jobs? Uh, they can't even help Nebuchadnezzar. They couldn't help Nebuchadnezzar. They can't help Belshazzar. You know, and I would say maybe only weathermen have this kind of job security. That you can be wrong this amount of times and still have a job. Or maybe baseball players. You know, you think about baseball players, they fail 70% of the time. If you, over the course of a career, fail 70% of the time, you still make the Hall of Fame. I mean, that's, that's a pretty low bar, isn't it? So, you know, if that's the case, these wise men, they're Hall of Famers because they never could get it right. After the wise men fail, then the queen, she hears what's going on and she comes in and makes a, rec a recommendation Verse 10, it says, Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Listen to her description. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. Who the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, for as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So when the king hears, or the queen hears what's going on and, and she finds out none of the Babylonians can help, she tells Belshazzar about, at this point, this old Jewish guy. He's just an old Jewish guy. His name is Daniel. And we don't know exactly what's going on with Daniel this time. And we don't know exactly who the queen is. I, I think it may have been her, either his mother or his grandmother. But, but we know that she had had some experience with Daniel and his, his interpretation skills years before. She knows who Daniel is. And we can't be sure, but it seems like Daniel is no longer maybe in the public eye as much. Maybe he's no longer serving in the administration. Uh, whether or not he was, it seems clear by her, her description here that Belshazzar doesn't know who Daniel is. Belshazzar, uh, maybe he heard of him at one point, but it sounds like he doesn't really know all that Daniel can do. And, and I, I just want to focus on how incredible it is that after all this time, Daniel's testimony is still strong enough that it opens doors of opportunity. See, you talk about a lasting legacy. When you have a certain spirit about you, people will remember. And I'd like to consider two things that allowed Daniel to have this influence. The first is this, is Daniel's consistent spirit. Daniel's consistent spirit. See, the account, this account takes place at least 20 years after Nebuchadnezzar has died. And which means if you, if you do the math, then it's been at least 30 years, maybe 40 years or more, since the last time we have a recorded dream interpretation from Daniel in this book. And that was, you're talking decades. Decades is the last time that we know of that Daniel has interpreted a dream. And guess what? People are still talking about him. 
And here's why. He had a special combination. He had ability and humility. And most of the time, if someone has ability, they're full of themselves. They're full of pride. Humility is typically reserved for those without great ability. The enemy of humility is often ability. I mean, just think about pro athletes. And the amount of pride in a pro athlete or in famous musicians or celebrities, you know, whatever they have, and most, most of them, I don't feel like they have a lot of talent. You don't have to have much ability in many ways these days. But because they're famous or because they have a great fortune, there's a genuine lack of humility. But here's Daniel, who is as, who is as able as anybody we've ever seen in Scripture. He's as talented as anybody that we've ever read about in Scripture, and yet he has a spirit about him that people are still talking about. See, Daniel was found ten times better than his peers. He was extremely intelligent. He, was, he, he knew about all the different subjects. He was knowledgeable in all those different areas they were training in. Not only that, he could interpret dreams. He'd, he'd already proven it many times. He had tremendous insight. Uh, it's talking about here, the queen says he had light and understanding. And as a young man, light means that he could see a subject and read that subject and come up with an insightful answer. Daniel is very intelligent. He's very wise, very smart. He has tremendous discernment. He literally influenced kings. He gave them his counsel. He had positions of authority as the king made him essentially second in command that he oversaw all the wise men of the land. And in, Neb and in verse 11, uh, it, Nebuchadnezzar it says it made him a master of those soothsayers, those Chaldeans. And, and he, he had all kinds of influence, all kinds of ability, all kinds of intelligence. And notice how the queen talks about him. You know, it's very interesting that the first, two, the first thing she mentions in verse 11, she says, there's a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In verse 12, she says, for as much as an excellent spirit. You know, here's, here's this man who had clearly had great ability and she's talking about his insight. She's talking about his understanding. She's talking about his wisdom and his knowledge and his ability to interpret dreams, his leadership among the wise men, his willingness to say the hard things, show hard sentences, his ability to dissolve doubts or alleviate the fear of people. But notice what the queen is talking about in verses 11 and 12. She's saying, you should see this guy's spirit. You should see his attitude. He has a spirit of the holy gods. He has an excellent spirit. Here's a man who lived among, de uh, among pagans for decades, and yet he never lost a spirit that set him apart. Listen, I'm just going to, I know this is simple tonight. The most important thing about you as a child of God is not how much Bible you know, but it's how much your spirit reflects Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus said in John 13 that our defining characteristic is love, he said. See, John 13, 35, he said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, 
If ye have love one to another. See, love is one of those things you can't really describe. You can't really um, put your finger on it. Why? Because it's a product of the Holy Spirit working in us. It is a fruit of the Spirit that we can't make happen on our own. It's the first fruit listed in Galatians 5. It's not something you can learn from a book. It's not something you can memorize from a page. It's not something you can practice and get better at. No, love as part of the fruit of the Spirit is something that God produces in you as the Holy Spirit works in you. And I just want to remind you tonight, as a church, as an individual, the most unique thing about you is not your knowledge, it's not your ability, it's not your charisma, and it's not your personality. No, the most unique thing about you is your spirit. The most influential thing about you is your spirit. And we might have the knowledge or have the right position and think, well, that's our greatest distinction. And I know those things matter. But if we don't have a humble spirit that reflects Jesus Christ, our positions don't matter. See, just as important as your position is your disposition. And that's true of us individuals. It's true of us as churches. And I like to think that our pursuit of being biblical, listen... I like to think, and I hope that you think this too, I like to think that our pursuit of being biblical means we're right. But none of that matters if Jesus Christ isn't seen in us. We can be as right as we want to, and no one will want what we have if we don't have a spirit of Jesus Christ. How consistent is your spirit? See, don't you appreciate people who are consistent? I mean, some people, and we, you know this to be true, we're all like this sometimes. Some people, you never know what mood you're going to catch them in. My wife would say, amen. <laughs> Talking about me. I'm, I can be that way. You can be that way. Sometimes, I don't know why, I just wake up. It's the same side of the bed, but man, it's a different person. The extremes. You know, some people, the extremes give you whiplash. You know, it's like the penguins, like following the light, you know, on that, maybe you haven't seen that video, you know, somebody has a light in a zoo and they're just being really mean to these penguins and they're just back and forth, like watching a tennis match. You know, you ever been around somebody, you just don't know. You don't know if it's going to be the happy one or the sad one or the upset one or the elated one, whatever it is. Now, listen, here's something that every child of God should strive for. We should strive to have a consistent spirit. See, day in, day out, We're gonna, we ought to say as God's people, I'm not going to allow my emotions to dictate how I behave. I'm not going to allow how I feel to dictate how I talk to people. I'm not going to allow the things that are up and down to impact how I operate. No, I'm going to operate based on truth because my emotions are inconsistent, but truth is not. And I'm asking you today, how consistent is your spirit at work? Say, well, you don't know my work environment. And I, I'm glad I don't. It's probably tough. But does that give a child of God an excuse to be the kind of person that no one wants to be around because you don't know what kind of mood they're going to be in today? I'm telling you, you can go into your workplace and you can have all the verses memorized and you can have our articles of faith just rolling off your tongue. But if people don't see Jesus in you, 
then all of the positions go out the window and your disposition has basically canceled it all out. How, how consistent do your, I mean, do your fellow employees know what kind of response they're going to get if they come talk to you? At school, we have young people that go to school and we've got some in the college class. And I mean, do people know the kind of person you're going to be? Is there consistency enough for them to take note of? I'm telling you, this is a hard one. How about at home? How's your spirit at home? Husbands and wives, does your spouse have to walk on eggshells around you because they don't know what your response is going to be today? I mean, they know what it was yesterday and it was good, but today it could be completely different. Listen, that's not fair for us to hold people captive like that. Your kids, moms and dads, do they wonder which mom or dad they're going to get today? You know, if I've learned anything, it's that a genuine walk with Christ produces consistency. And truth produces a consistent spirit. And for Daniel, it was decades of consistency. I mean, you're talking about from the time he was a teenager to the time that he's now probably in his maybe 70s or 80s. Here he is, and he's an old man, but he's still the same person he was 50, 60 years ago. You know, which, it, it, what that does for us is it says, okay, I could never be Daniel. And I say, well, why not? Because if it was possible for Daniel, who didn't have the resources that you and I have, if it was possible for him, then it must be possible for you and I as well. People ought to expect a consistent spirit of humility and love and joy from God's people. Here's the second consistency, and that is this. Daniel's, so first was Daniel's consistent spirit, and then second is Daniel's consistent stand. See, notice, they had to call, this is really interesting, they had to call Daniel to the party that night. So what, do you, what can you conclude about that? That Daniel what? Daniel wasn't there. Daniel was somewhere else. Daniel's probably somewhere praying because he's that kind of a guy. And he's probably up in some tower watching the, what's going on beyond the walls and sees the Medes and the Persians surrounding Babylon. Then he can hear the revelry going on inside the palace. And he's just looking up to God, the God of heaven, and saying, God, have mercy on us because I know we're sinning against you. I know we don't deserve it, but could you just in your mercy find a way to show us some? He wasn't at the party. And even with all of his power, even with all of his influence, if at one point or maybe even at this point, I don't know that he's still in charge of the sages, the wise men. At one point, he was over that group. And he could have, if he wanted to, stayed connected enough to be invited to the party. But that means, though, that as, as Daniel got older, his standards, his stand did not change. And it, it, that means that who Daniel was in Daniel chapter 1, he's the same in Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel 1, he was a young man who said, I will not eat the king's diet. I will not compromise in that way. In Daniel chapter 5, he's an old man. And he says, I will not compromise by going down to that party. He stood as a teenager. He's standing as an older man. And let me just say this. You don't have to be at the party for people to come to you with questions. 
You don't have to be, you don't have to have a connection and you don't have to be all in. Sometimes Christians think, well, I have to relate to people. I have to connect with people. I've got to get right in with them to influence them. But if you have a consistent spirit and a consistent stand, here's what I've learned and here's what we can learn from Daniel. When the world needs truth, they're going to come seek you out for it. You don't have to be partying. You don't have to sit among them for them to be seeking you out. No, if you have a testimony of taking a stand and a testimony of a good spirit, then there will be those that are, that are in the world that are, that are in, a, in a need of truth. They're going to come looking for you because of your testimony. Daniel's not, met, he's not numbered with Belshazzar's friends. He is numbered with the few that have truth when it's needed and if you're trying your hardest to fit in with the crowd don't be surprised if you don't get a call when they need truth why would they need to go to somebody who's just like they are the world needs truth i mean can we just stop and acknowledge this today the world needs truth there is you're not finding truth everywhere you're looking where else are they going to find truth can you turn on the news and find truth well no I mean even the conservative news outlets have an angle I mean I don't trust the the mainstream news media they've proven over and over again they have an agenda you can't pull up social media and find truth because everybody wants to present their own truth you can't trust the government for truth I mean, here we are in a culture that is built on truth, at least it was, and now where are you going to find truth? People need a source of truth, somewhere that they know they can always go and find an answer. And you know, there's a few places left like that, and I like to think that this, this place right here is one of those places. And when people know, I need something real, I need something true, I need something that's different than what everyone else is saying, and I know there's a church down there on Southeast 49th Street, and I know that I can go there and I can get some truth. Or they'll say this, listen, I need some truth. I need someone to help me with this situation I'm in. And I've really gotten myself in a mess. And I don't know where to go. I can't trust anybody. But you know the person that works next to me Monday through Friday... I think they're probably a good source of truth. They don't party with everybody else. They're not going out on the weekends with everybody else. But I know that they read their Bible at lunch. And if there's anywhere I can go to find somebody that is standing for truth, I think I'm going to go to so-and-so. And you know what I hope? I hope that they find out that person goes to Eastside Baptist Church. Not because we want them to, not that they have to come and that's our motive. No, we want them to come, but we want them to find truth. And we want members of Eastside Baptist Church to be little sources of truth wherever you go. And if you'll have a consistent spirit and take a consistent stand, then you'll find people coming to you at some point. By the way, there are a few things more damaging to your testimony than changing your stand. There are plenty of people, they start out strong in this area over here, but they find out the battle is long, they find out the battle is hard, so they start moving. And I know that, that it, it's the easiest thing to do at some point, to just kind of let down your guard and let those things go. Um, but changing doesn't go unnoticed. 
Daniel stood strong from start to finish. And you say, well, he's just a different kind of a person. Well, yeah, he is. And also he was written about in the Bible, which means that he's the kind of person we probably ought to emulate. Rather than saying, I could never be like Daniel, say, no, if Daniel could do it, I probably could do it. He had no parents helping him. He didn't have a copy of God's word to read. And yet from the time he was a teenager, he stood and he stood. And year after year after year, who Daniel was when he was 15, Daniel was still when he was 75. I'm sure maybe at some point he thought about adjusting. Maybe there were days where he thought, I should just do what they're doing. Everyone else is easier. But listen, if he had ever adjusted along the way, he probably wouldn't get an opportunity like this. He decided that a consistent stand would make the bigger statement in the end. And he was right. He had influence. He had decades, decades of influence. And just take note then tonight, both the stand and the spirit matter. You need both. See, you need to do right. You ought to do right. You ought to look, look into God's word and find out what it says and figure out what it means and stand on it. Be resolved. Stand strong. But you also ought to need to have a spirit of humility that others are drawn to. And here's a danger I think we can have as independent Baptists. We say, we're strong. We're right. Well, I hope we're right or else why are we here? But sometimes I think we can be so strong about being right that we forget it's not just our stand that draws people. It's the spirit of Jesus Christ that draws people. And it's possible, you know what this tells me? If it's possible for a teenager to stand from age 15 to 75, 80, 85, however old he is, then it's possible for me to stand and do right, but also have a right spirit about it. It's possible to have, if you get nothing else, this is it. It's possible to have the right position and the right disposition. Because people don't really, and this is true, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And we won't win people with knowledge alone. Do we need knowledge? Absolutely. No, but we'll win them when they see in us a spirit they can't explain. See, that's what's happening here. The queen's talking about Daniel and she can't even explain it. He has this spirit about him. It's different than all the other guys, King. And I know you're thinking, well, who, who is this guy? No, I, was, I can't explain it. But it's real. He has a spirit about him that you just have to see. And a spirit like that, listen, a spirit like what Daniel had can only be from the Holy Spirit. It had to be from a divine source that can't be explained away. And I'm just wondering tonight, do people say that about your spirit? Your attitude? Do they look at you and say, that's the kind of spirit I can't explain? That can only come from God because nobody can have that kind of spirit in that situation like they're having. And I just know that's something I want. They file it away and when they need somebody to give them truth, guess who they come to? Is your spirit such that people say, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something special about them. You know, and the icing on the cake here is we can be biblical at the same time. We can do things the right way. We can believe the right things and not be a Pharisee about our positions, but also not afraid or unable to articulate where we stand when we need to. See, the world needs truth. We're in a mess. 
People define their own truth these days. People make up their own terms. They're redefining terms we've always heard and always believed to be one thing. And now it's like, well, that doesn't mean that anymore. And you can just make up what you want. Biblical truth has been discarded. Where is truth going to come from? Well, the world needs people with an excellent spirit that have wisdom and knowledge and can say the hard things and dissolve doubts. That's what they need. People that couldn't say like Daniel said in verse 17, let thy gifts be to thyself. Give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing and make known the interpretation. What he says is, this is not so that you'll like me or so that I can have gifts and rewards. No, I'm not doing this for glory. I'm not doing this for recognition. I'm just doing this because no one else is going to be able to tell you what is true. He wasn't worried about fitting in. He wasn't worried about being cool. He just wanted someone to represent truth to people that needed to hear it. Amen. So here's, here's in a nutshell the point tonight. Those with the most influence won't be the ones at the party. Young people, I hope you listen to that. Those with the most influence won't be the ones at the party. No, those with the most influence will be the ones with a consistent spirit and a consistent stand. See, a consistent spirit that people look at and say, I can't explain it except that it has to be a product of a supernatural relationship with God. And a consistent stand that refuses to change with the culture. Now, if you'll have those two things, and I don't typically, um, I don't typically, uh, what's the word? I'll make everything start with the same letter. Alliterate, okay? See, that's how little I do it. Brother Ruckman's here, I'm trying to impress him. Now, if you'll have a consistent spirit and a consistent stand, you'll find yourself having consistent sway with a culture that needs truth. You want influence? Teenagers don't go to the party. And might I say, in this culture, adults don't go to the party. Don't throw your lot in with the world and the parties and the hedonism and everything else going on. No, say, I'm going to stand over here. And I'm going to do it with a spirit of humility, a spirit of love. And when they need someone to tell them the truth, they know where to find me. And you're going to find that a consistent spirit and a consistent stand will cause you to have a consistent sway with a culture that needs truth. So I'm asking you tonight, how consistent is your spirit? And second, how consistent is your stand? Now, you say, that is, it doesn't really matter to me. If you don't want to make an impact, if you don't want to make a difference, that's fine. You don't have to listen to this. But if you want to live a life that matters, then we ought to take some notes from Daniel and say, I'm going to have a consistent spirit and a consistent stand because I want to have a consistent sway with a culture that needs to hear truth. Would you be willing to do that tonight? Ask the Lord to give you a better spirit, a stronger stand so that you can make a bigger impact. Let's stand together. Every head bowed and eye closed. Appreciate your, your listening here tonight, your attention. Let's just consider where we need to be in our stand, in our spirit, in the, the kind of difference that we want to make in this culture. If we want to be the kind of place that people know I can find truth there, then a stand and a spirit are absolutely important. And how are, your, how are you doing in these areas? God, we need you tonight. Pray that you just do your work. I don't want to try to 
talk anybody else into it, Lord, I think the truth is here. Would you give us the, the wherewithal, the resolve to examine ourselves and make sure that we have a consistent spirit so the world says, I want that. I don't know where they get it, but I want it in a consistent stand that the world looks at and says, you know, they're different and I know they're different, but boy, when I need some truth, I'm going to go to them. God, help us to just recognize that the differences are made in the small decisions. It seems to be the theme of Daniel's life. Help us to be like Daniel in these areas. Lord, we need you, but you do work in us in Jesus' name. Amen.